I'm fairly trite, but I think you have to believe in yourself. Totally. And um, that's ninety nine percent. And and it shows when you believe in yourself, then whatever you radiate, I pick it up on it. So I know I'm supposed to believe in you. Right. But if you don't believe in yourself, I don't either. <laughs> you know. So totally. Uh, so that's a safe start. Um, you know, if you really want to say, how do you get the background and the credibility to go into development? Um, you know, it's what you mentioned. It's knowing people. It's meeting people. It's developing what in whatever niche you're in. It's, you know, getting to the head of the class. Hello and welcome to another edition of TrackCast, the official podcast of the Real Estate Council. From deep in the heart of Dallas, Texas, I'm Bill San Antonio. Thank you for joining us. Today we're taking you through part one of the very best from season two of our Legends of Commercial Real Estate series. You'll hear from Craig Hall of Hall Group, Lucy Billingsley of Billingsley Company, and Ray Washburn of Charter Holdings, each in conversation with Bill Cauley of Cauley Partners. These are condensed versions of much longer interviews that we released throughout the last year, covering topics like their rise through the commercial real estate industry here in Dallas, their interests outside of the office, and their outlook on the future of the DFW Metroplex. Each full-length interview is available for free through this podcast and our YouTube channel, so go check them out. We've linked to both Legends Seasons, our podcast platforms, YouTube channel, and social media handles in the show notes. Before we get started, mark your calendars for Wednesday, August 17th. That's the date of our next Bank of Texas Speaker Series event, which features a live conversation between Bill Cauley and Crescent Real Estate co-founder John Goff. You won't want to miss that. Tickets are available now at recouncil.com backslash upcoming dash events. We'll link to it in the show notes as well. Special thanks to series sponsor Stuart Title and media sponsor the Dallas Morning News for their support of Speaker Series. I'd also like to thank the Dallas Business Journal for sponsoring our Legends of Commercial Real Estate series. Visit bizjournals.com backslash Dallas for exclusive reporting on the hottest business topics in North Texas and get breaking news alerts and insights from Business Journal's vast network of national publications. And for more interviews with top DFW business leaders and personalities, subscribe to the Texas Business Minds podcast, available wherever you download podcasts. Now, here's the very best from our conversations with Craig Hall, Lucy Billingsley, and Ray Washburn, right here on TrackCast. I know you're from the Midwest, Michigan. Why, why Dallas? How did you end up in Dallas? Well, at the time um, that we moved, we were a national company. I, I right. started uh, the company um, uh, in Ann Arbor, Michigan, uh, when I, many, many years ago when I was uh, 18. Uh, but by the time I was in my early 30s, we had, uh, uh, at the high point, we had about 72,000 apartments. And we were, today that's not as big as it was then. We were just under being the largest company uh, apartment ownership yeah. in, in the world. We were, Samuel Lafrac out of New York had a, a few thousand more, uh, but pretty close. Uh, anyway, we were all over the country, and so um, I and we had an office here in Dallas. Uh, we had regional offices in Newport Beach, California, Atlanta, Phoenix, Houston, Dallas, um, and so I was going to take one of the regional offices and move our headquarters there. From 
from um, Detroit, it was two flights to a lot of places. Right. And so it just didn't make sense. And, and frankly, um, growing up in Michigan, as much as I love my uh, home state, uh, it was an auto state. If you weren't in the automobile business, you weren't really, uh, you know, part of the real business community. Right. So, you know, real estate is sort of a, a lifeblood for uh, Dallas and has been since I've uh, been been here old. Did, did you see, did you, like when, so it was more a geographic decision. Did you see or think that Dallas was going to do what it's done? I mean, did oh, you well, see it that, that early? No, I, well, it was, it was not a, it was partially a good growth location, but, you know, I thought of uh, other, Atlanta certainly is a possibility, uh, but which has also grown. Yeah. Uh, but it was really the thing that attracted me to Dallas was the entrepreneurial spirit. And and it's uh, never disappointed and, right. and doesn't today. It's just, it's a great place for people who have a desire to do something and stand on their own. And it's a place that, um, in my case, uh, awards second chances. I, I went right. through a horrible downturn and, and people, uh, you know, uh, judge you based on your integrity and based on what you do, not uh, who you were born to, and uh, that yeah. kind of thing. It's I, it's I, I love Dallas. I found the same. Like I came from the Midwest. I'm from Illinois, and I came here knowing no one. And um, I think if you add value or and yeah. if you have some integrity, the door's wide open. There's yep. no clickish type community. No, I just think it's a special place and. It's a big city, but yet it's small. I oh, think everybody great. knows everybody. I yep. think you can penetrate it. And I still think today people can come here, maybe not as easily as when we came. But if you add value, I think the door's wide open. Yeah, and I, you know, from a real estate standpoint, it's a mixed um, uh, blessing and curse all at once. We have always had and still do, although the names are changing because, uh, uh, you know, over... I guess I've been here it's 40 years or something. Right. You know, time goes by, but but uh, over 40 years, uh, some people unfortunately are no no longer with us. But there's still this is a hugely talented city. So talented. And and so uh, the bad news is when whenever you need uh, one of something, three of us uh, build the one, and, <laughs> and and we have a lot of vacancy, and so right. you know, and there's always land, and so right. you know, it's it's. It's not the easiest real estate market. It's it's, it's a tough real estate market, but it's fun. It's a great. It's a just yeah. a great place to be. I don't. And everything I you know I kind of think is cool about you is you don't do you don't half step anything. If you're going to get in, you're all in, which is a, a you know a, a credit to you. But, well, at times it can be a detriment. I you know in the, in the wine business, <laughs> I jumped in. The, you know, all Kathy wanted was a a small uh, wine business and. I just didn't know how it's to do you. that. Right. <laughs> no, right. no. But so, but, might have been but, smarter though. But, well, I mean, maybe financially, certainly. Yeah. But you're in the like you said in your in your book. You know, you're in the business of taking risk. You're in the risk business, I and that's it. kind of what I feel. I mean, and everybody's got a different tolerance for risk. And um, I'm not at your level of what you've accomplished, but I kind of feel like we've got similar risk. I'm sure we do. Risk. Uh, yeah. you know, like the gut where in your gut where you're comfortable yeah. with risk. I tend to be more, I mean, I, I, I really respect it, but I tend to be more comfortable with risk if I have passion for it. And I think it's the right thing. I'm all in. Absolutely. And, and, and you're, you know, the word passion is a great word because 
entrepreneurship, in my view, should be about passion. And, you know, if I were a young person, uh, I'd want to be doing things I'm passionate about, things right. that I enjoy. Right. You know, life's too short to um, be in it for the money per se. I mean, money's a nice byproduct, I, yeah. you know, but it's a byproduct. I don't think it works, right, if you're chasing money. you got to chase something no. you really care about. Absolutely. So, like, if you've got a young person, and I'm sure you have a lot of them coming to you, you know, any sage words of advice or maybe one or two things you well, you always tell them? Well, I mean, because well, I always I have these people coming in, and they're fresh out of college and they're looking for work. And I always try to give them honest feedback. Sure. And, um, you know, I think people want to know, so, you know, how the hell did you do what you did? But, but what advice would you give them? And then the other question I would have is how did you go from no money to having, to creating enough capital to, to, to invest? Well, there's a lot of, a lot of questions. That's a big question. <laughs> and, and, but uh, but it's, uh, it's what people want to know. I mean, they yeah. kind of want to understand because somebody's sitting out there going to listen to this and go, can I ever be Craig Hall? Yeah. Well, well, and they it, can. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, well, you know, uh, first of all, I, I started with money I saved. Uh, my, I, I did not grow up with uh, any money. Uh, uh, not, I'd, I'd say, lower middle class family. Not, yeah. not poor, but... Um, um, my parents both came back from World War II and started a life, um, but they didn't have any any backing to it financially. Um, so uh, when I when I um, I'd saved from age uh, eight to age seventeen four thousand dollars, and I used that to to buy a rooming house, um, and that's a whole different story as to why I did it. But from the rooming house. Uh, I was surprised. I, I did it for a specific reason, which related to proving a, that you could be a, an honest, good guy landlord. And uh, there were a lot of fights between student tenants at the University right. of Michigan and landlords. And uh, I had run for mayor for a day of Ann Arbor, and I was it was a political statement yeah. to buy this place. But after I bought it, I thought this is fun. And and by the way. Everything went wrong, but without getting into, you know, too many rabbit trails and so on, I, you know, nothing worked the way right. it was planned. And, uh, you know, I got in my first lawsuit in my first building. You know, the <laughs> seller told me something wasn't uh, a lease that turned out to be a lease, and it was a, at a really low rate. So, anyway, it was a learning experience. And you would think from all the things that went wrong, and financially it was a disaster, you would think, well, That'd be the end of that. And I had no interest or intent of being in business. That was never on my radar. I didn't, right. I thought business seemed like a, you know, crude, dirty thing to do. I just wanted to, you know, be a social worker, literally. Seriously? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I, I, I'm, I'm, you know, trying to become a social worker, about to start uh, college. And uh, there, there was a television show called East Side, West Side, George C. Scott. Remember and, it. and he was a social worker. That was my... Right. That was what I wanted to do. And, um, but, but I just loved all the, the, the complications and all the headaches and everything that went wrong. Yeah. And so then I wanted to buy a second building. And um, I looked around and I realized I had no money. I mean, it didn't take long. I mean, I was losing money on the building <laughs> and I put my entire life savings in it. So it was pretty obvious. And, you know, and I'm working a full-time job and, and a full-time student in college. 
So I got this rooming house and a full-time job to pay for my losses in the rooming house and, and then going to college. And um, so then I went to students at the University of Michigan and I said, hey, give me $200 and I'll make you a partner in this deal. And, you know, I figured it out on a little piece of paper. And I, I, I didn't really know what I was doing, uh, but it was a limited partnership. And I said, I'll be in charge. You guys just give me your money. And I raised uh, um, $3,500. That's awesome. Yeah, that's how I did from my co- first deal. college kids. Yeah, all from college kids. And that was my first deal. And did that and, one work? Yeah, you know, reasonably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I went on to buy about 30 or 35 buildings over two or three years. And did you and, and, do it all the same way, raising all, money? All, all the same way, yeah. And then I and then I, uh, I was at an event a uh, weekend ago in, uh, in, in uh, Napa, and a guy came up to me uh, who has been a friend for years, and, um, and there was a third party there, and he started telling this other person how he first met me, and that was in 1971. And that was when I bought my first, what I called real people housing. It was a pretty big place. It was like 25 units or something. Yeah. It was tiny. Yeah. But, 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 but it was big no, it, it was not student housing. It was real people housing. Yeah. And this guy helped me raise the money. And then we both got a call from the securities uh, uh, bureau in Michigan saying, wait a minute, we hear that you're illegally raising money under securities. And I didn't even know what a security was. Of course. And, and I had done probably 50 or 60 of these partnerships before that one. And um, so both of us had to get lawyers and go meet with the securities people. And this wouldn't happen today. Today they just throw you in jail and, you know, whatever. And he said, you know, you've been doing this wrong. And they explained to us, I became kind of a model citizen after that. We, we, we learned how to do it right. We hired real lawyers. We uh, kind of uh, did everything right. And then I was actually on a, the securities board that they had in Michigan, and I was very actively involved. And, but this guy, uh, who was the um, uh, regulator, uh, his name was Hugh Makins, just a classy, good human being. He, mm-hmm. he did the right thing by you know, helping us get on the straight and narrow rather than, right. you know. Instead of causing playing, a bunch yeah. of a big mess, yeah. right? But so, yeah, so, yeah, we, I went on to raise, I raised over a billion dollars uh, before I was 32, 33 years old. Yeah. Uh, and that was when money was really a lot, you know, today with inflation, that's a, I mean, it would be a lot more money. Uh, so even from when you were like younger, were you always driven like that? I mean, did you always try to make money and save it and... I guess I guess I yeah. I guess I'd say I'm most guilty about yeah yeah because yeah. I would yeah. say like for me yeah. my kids yeah. I kind of want passion about something and grit right yeah because I think drive it's it's hard it's if hard, you want it it's hard for I, I, well you got a better shot at it I don't know about you yeah I agree with all that yeah um, it's hard for kids who live the way we live to have quite the same grit that I right had and that you I probably had totally agree yeah I, I think. Life is uh, maybe I shouldn't say too easy, but softer. Today, it's right? totally totally different. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, wine business. So I'm reading the book about you going to lunch and going by the the broken down winery that was sitting there, and I think it was Edgewood Estate Winery. Correct. Is that right? Yes. Uh huh. Yes. So one of my favorite things I think with people is they see opportunity, they think about it. 
and then they don't do it. They don't act on it. And so what I like about that story is that you're going to lunch and you see it and you have your lunch and you go do something about it. Could you give us a quick one on on that? It's kind of like getting into the wine business. Yeah. Well, we had a a small winery um, uh, in a different location, four miles from, from is now our St. Helena winery that you're talking about. And literally their traffic was real slow. And so I'm looking off to the left and, and my whole business to that point uh, had been about turnarounds. It had been about buying distressed assets and improving them, which is a great uh, business model that has worked for many years in the past and will continue to work for many years in the future. still does today. So, that's, I just saw this and it kind of flashed in my head. I, I, it was, I had a similar experience um, much earlier in my career. Um, but, you know, so that was a big step in our wine business because it was a, a at one point, this property um, after Prohibition was the largest winery in Napa Valley. Mm-hmm. They made 40% of all the wine in Napa. And when we bought it, it was uh, licensed to make a million one hundred thousand cases. And it was just a mess of a facility. But today, it's uh, it's beautiful. We're very proud of it. And does the license go with the facility? Yeah. When you oh, buy yeah. It? oh, yeah. Got all, it. So you got that license. Yeah, actually, the fir- first that was built in 1885. So the first entitlements go back that far. And um, so it makes it pretty unique. It How was long had it been sitting there unused? Well, it was it was open, but, but okay, kind of just in bad down. shape and really run down. Was it for sale? Uh, interestingly, it wasn't for sale. Um, and, uh, so first thing I did is I figured out who, who owned it right? and it was owned by a public company. So then my, <laughs> my perverse uh, thinking was that I would, uh, I went and checked out who owned stock and uh, yeah. I thought, well, okay, I'll buy a bunch of stock and then I'll, uh, you know, uh, have some, go have a, go have a discussion with them. <laughs> exactly. And, and, uh, it, it, it turns out I'm in a meeting, uh, with a investment banker slash real estate broker in uh, in uh, Napa uh, about two or three weeks later, not that much uh, time. And I'm he brings up that property. He says, hey, I just I got a listing on a really crummy property. I don't know who I'm going to get to buy this property. And he tells me about it. I said, okay, I'll buy, I'll oh, buy I'm it. I'm in. Yeah, I'm in. And then, you know, it took like no time at all to agree on a price. And uh Okay, so that was your first purchase, right? For wine? No, it was our biggest. Uh, we, biggest. Yeah, we had okay. a, we had a, a an earlier property. Okay, so I know Kathy was raised in the wine business, so it's big part of her life growing up. Yeah, sort of. I mean, she, her father had a small vineyard, but it was. It, but she it, had a passion yeah, for it. She had a passion for it. No okay, yeah. so did you have a clue? Did you know anything about wine other than drinking it? No, 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 not, not even drinking it so much. I, I mean, I, I, I uh, when we first uh, met, I thought that uh, you, you made rosé by putting uh, red wine <laughs> red and, and white, white, together. white together and shake it up a little bit. You know, we've got I, that yeah, in common. Yeah, yeah, but uh, uh, no, it's it's uh, totally a uh, uh, new thing. And what was fun about the wine, or what is fun, it's you know the way I'm saying it, it's it's less fun for me and than it was at different times because it's really doing well and it's stabilized and it's, right. you know, I enjoy, um, you know, stressful, complicated times, but the wine business is really a stressful business because you've got manufacturing, you've got 
farming, which is really fun. It really is fun. It's it's totally different. Uh, you've got retailing. You've got brand building. And those are very different things from certainly the real estate orientation. Right. Now, I, in my career, I've done, um, I would have been a lot better off in many ways if I stayed focused. And, and uh, you know, real estate's always been kind of a somewhat common theme. But when I was 28, I started a, a health maintenance organization. Right. Um, I've done uh, a lot of oil and gas at different times. and done a lot of different things. And I've enjoyed the yeah. variety. But when you go to the variety, the different uh, type investments, like the wine business, mm-hmm. did you go find somebody that knew what they were doing? Or did you go try to figure it out yourself? No, I generally tried to figure it out myself. I, I, I'm, you know, I'm, again, that would be uh, a, an easier, logical <laughs> way to do it. Yeah, I, it, it, I, I, I've never been into the, now that I'm, the older you get, the more you realize, you know, I really should ask somebody how to do this. Right. But, but, you know, it, it um, I, you know, it's good to not know what you shouldn't be able to do. Mm-hmm. You might try and do something that uh, others would tell you, you know, the older we get and the more we learn, the more we learn uh, to right. confine ourselves. Right. And, and it's great to have an expansive view of things. And, and when you're younger and you don't uh, know enough to not try things, you go try things and boy, some of them work. Right. You know, I just wish I had, you know, I don't have a um, mathematical technology scientific mind. I wish I'd been born in Silicon Valley with a little bit of science knowledge. I could have, I could have been something. <laughs> <laughs> I think you've done fine. So like, but though, when you're saying, okay, I'm going to go get in the wine business, did you go read about it or you no, just, just did it? Just did it. Yeah. Okay. So I know right. talk to a lot of people. I mean, I can remember, uh, and one of the nice things about uh, Napa Valley uh, at least, and I, I don't know the wine business everywhere, but a lot of people were very giving uh, of their so time helped and helped. Cool. And, and you know, uh, it was a, was, and I hope still is, and I hope we are to other people, a friendly business. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I've met two people. Um, I have a home in Montecito, and there's a wine area there by Santa Barbara. Sure. And I've met two people who don't know them well that, that have done well and they got into the wine business. And they've got these fabulous, and don't ask me the names because I'm not going to remember them, but I'll, I'll get it to you if you're interested. But, and I, my, my, like we're having dinner, and I said, Well, um, how long does it take you to make money? And <laughs> both of them have said, We haven't had that day yet. Yeah. It's, yeah. So it's, I don't think it's an easy business. No, it's a very hard business. Um, we have had that day. We, we, we make money. Yeah. But, you know, we've been at it for 27, 28 years now. It's and been that long. Yeah, and um, uh, it's our versus ninety-two. So, how long did um, it take you to make money? Oh, twenty years or so. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and awesome. I love that commitment. Yeah, no, it's a lot. I mean, it's awesome. Yeah, but it's a you know, it's a really capital-intensive business. Yeah. Now, there are different ways of doing the wine business, but part of the fun, and it is about being fun, is doing it. You know, from the the Farming all the way through the bottle and and, yeah. and selling it yeah. and and um, it's been great. It's got to be a lot of pride to it. You know, yeah. my wife's a big fan of your wine, and, and we appreciate uh, it. Which she cracked open a bottle last night. I said, "Well, I'm gonna see him tomorrow." And um, but I think I would have a lot of pride from starting from the ground to the bottle. It would yeah. be very cool. And then the name recognition that your wine now has it's uh, yeah. it's quite an accomplishment. Yeah, it is fun. It is fun. 
So what's the most visible opportunity you see in business that nobody's taking advantage of? Huh. That's an interesting question. I mean, do you see uh, something out there that you think is going, why isn't somebody doing that? Actually, um, maybe you don't want to tell me because I'm going to go do it. Or no, 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 no. <laughs> um, you know, a lot of the, first of all, I, I have to say there are lots of good ideas that it's a matter of the execution. It's not just the totally. idea. Totally. So, so, uh, uh, but you know, I think today, um, more and more ideas are, anytime somebody finds a vacuum, people are, are, uh, doing things and it's an exciting time because of all the explosion of technology and um you know that uh it, you know it it'd be a great time to be um a young entrepreneur it'd be it'd be uh, exciting um i don't see any huge immediate opportunities i mean there's lots of little things you know in in our primary business of real estate um uh it's still pretty entrepreneurial and there's a lot of different opportunities. On the other hand, real estate and pretty much every industry, wine, certainly, they're all consolidating. And I, I really, I understand it. I am frustrated mm -hmm. because some of it is um, unfortunate. It, it's hard for the uh, s small, medium guy to stay around. You know, and, and I think we're right now we're doing this just before uh, we hear about what new tax laws are going to change. Right. But one of the un unforeseen consequences of lots of uh, policies that I've seen over the last few decades is that they force more consolidation. We'll see what the tax laws do, but I can right. see how that could yeah. be a byproduct. Yeah. Hey guys, it's Bill here. I wanted to let you know about our newest educational program, The Deal from acquisition to disposition. It's a five-part course that explores the anatomy of the commercial real estate transaction process from start to finish. Designed specifically for commercial real estate professionals wanting to expand their expertise, the deal covers topics like site selection, sourcing and structuring capital, day-to-day -day operations, and of course, the acquisition and disposition of a property. Sound interesting? You can apply now at recouncil.com through Wednesday, August 3rd at 5.30 p.m. We'll link to that in the show notes as well. Space is very limited, so don't wait. Apply today. Now, back to the show. So I talked to your daughter about get some questions here yeah. so I could get some kind of inside scoop. And so one of the ones that she talked about is, what about JFK's assassination Oh, and that, that day yeah, yeah. and what was going on in your life when that happened? Yeah, well, I was 10 years old. And uh, uh, he was obviously driving, well, he was driving next to the trademark. Right. And which is dad's building. And so there's a big, big luncheon there to receive him. And, uh, you know, being the one girl with five brothers, um, I got to stand uh, there. Dad was going to be the next person to meet JFK. So I got to stand there with my brownie camera and, and my younger brother, Stuart, uh, uh, we were going to be the next ones to be able to say hello to him. So he was on the way there to, meet, mm -hmm. and you guys were going to greet yeah. him. And then we saw all these motorcycles peel off and sirens go by. So, you know, dad took us inside and, um, you know, the next messages came out to the whole crowd and you've got, you know, for me, it was just stunning because you saw all these adults start crying 
It was a very powerful experience. So what, was it pretty quickly you knew there was there was a problem? Uh, there, you knew there's a problem very quickly, and then obviously we waited and waited, and then finally they... What a, what a dark Should, day yeah. for the yeah. country that was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was unbelievable. Okay, so I know you like to travel. What, how about most interesting trip you've ever been on? Well, um, we were on a trip once in Ladakh, which is a, a, a far eastern side of India, and uh, went to the airport, and there was in one plane a day to leave, and there's a riot at the airport, and so um, we didn't, we had all the kids with us, and we had pushed our way to get in, and we ran, I pushed our way to get out, and had to take a, a two-day caravan, a jeep caravan through the mountains to get down to Kashmir in India, and into a war zone. And um, then we're there in the war zone for a couple of days and staying on these uh, houseboats, which were hotels. And it was stunningly beautiful and really fascinating. Did you know you were scary. going into a war zone when you booked the trip? I mean, yeah. Well, no. If we'd gotten out on the plane, we wouldn't have gone. So into this a war was in zone. lieu of the plane. Got yeah, it. yeah, yeah, yeah. That was we. That was our only way out then. Um, so anyway, that's that sort of makes it down for a fascinating <laughs> experience. Uh, and you know, really, it, it, Kashmir is the resort area of northern India, but it's you know had. I've know, heard had India couples. is a beautiful country. Yeah, yeah, stunning. Yeah, but the thing about it is, uh, I've never really had a, much of a desire to go to India because yeah. of the density of the population. Yeah. But I guess it's probably knowing where to go, right? Now, and and get over worrying about the density. I mean, this is the most exotic place on earth, and. Once in a lifetime, you need to say, I'm going to just go and, and be, experience it. I'm going to be part of it. Yeah. Um, people don't like it because you're exposed to so much poverty. That's true. Right. Right. You know what? It's reality. Yeah. Too, isn't yeah. It? Yeah. So, you know, what I want to do is understand what is this human experience? I totally so agree let's, with that. You know, jump out there and. and All right. I'm going to pick your brain and yeah. maybe I'll, I'll go figure out where yeah. to go in India. Okay. So people business, right? You come from such a famous family mm -hmm. and. What went into the thought of leaving the family business and going out on your own? Because I, I actually, I didn't, I don't have a famous family like yeah. you do, but I left my family business to yeah. move to Texas. And I know my conversations with my father, because he kind of thought I would take it over, right. were um, he really supported me, even though he didn't really want it to happen. And yeah. I just wonder how that was with you. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a, a, a real easy answer. Um if you're one of six, you're always going to be a minority. Right. And I wanted to make my own mistakes. And, um, you know, it's also hard to say uh, you want all the decisions that you're making being with your siblings. That's not totally. the, a natural business group. So um, anyway, that was it. Um, and so we just slowly unwound some things and... Um, and, you know, I married Henry, and who at that time had worked for uh, Dad and the Crow Company. And um, he launched off on his own, so there we go. When you decided to do it, did you have clarity on what you wanted to do? Um, no. No, I was I, I decided to leave the family business, but I was running the Dallas Market Center. Right. And so I stayed there. Right. And I kept running the Dallas Market Center for, you know, I don't know. Um, I was there 15 years. Uh, and... Um, so probably, you know, five or six years after I decided to leave the business, I kept on running it. And, um, uh, you know, so then once I left the market center, that's when I said I got to launch out and say, what are we doing? By that time, Henry 
bought quite a bit of raw land. Right. I first, um, I took a travel agency that I'd launched at the market center. And this was sort of in the great real estate drought in, yeah. Uh, yeah. in the early 1990s. And so I thought, let me go make this travel agency something. I, everything I'd been was a family business. I didn't know if I could do this stuff myself. Right. And so I had to go into something that was totally different and, you know, see if I knew how to make it work. And fortunately, things, you know, worked out okay. And um, then we started to come out of the real estate drought. Henry had all this land around. And I said, instead of selling it, why don't I go build something on it? And so then there we go. That's awesome. Yeah. So it was. So he had made those investments. You saw yeah, that they yeah. were, yeah, let's he, go ahead and build on he it. Bought, he bought the land that ended up being the intersection of Bush and the tollway. Right. So, you know, but he didn't know that when he bought it. He knew the tollway was coming up, but he didn't know where Bush was going. Right. Well, I mean, that land by Cypress and then yeah. now the one in Allen, I think, have been yeah. just so smart, you know, well, to get way out in front. I, so I married well. Yeah. <laughs> So what's your view of Dallas in the next five years? Unbelievable. I think it's going to be great. I mean, we have 18 people moving here every hour. I did not know that. (laughs) I mean, what a statistic is that? I think that's 342 a day. Um, We're supposed to obviously be 10 million people at uh, 2030. And then by 2050, 16 million I kind of think it's going to be the roaring 20s for the next three, four, five years. It's going to oh, be crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And so we, interestingly, have a huge obligation as developers because this is the time when the city is built. We better do it right. Totally right. You know, so this sensitivity to all these things is, you know. You know, sometimes important. I'll go back and look at projects I've done, and um, I feel like I didn't think big enough. Yeah, sure. I, I played safe instead of thought yeah, yeah. bigger. Yeah, yeah, I've done Maybe under, underdeveloped a site or did something yeah. where I could have done something more grand. And one of my kind of goals going forward is to make sure that I'm, I'm pushing myself yeah. to think big. It's an interesting thing. I mean, because we've been, we've been conservative always. Um, right. uh, but one of the risks is, as uh, at least as I've watched people, as they get older, they start spending more money, and then the project may not pencil. <laughs> but I want to do it right this time, this time. Um, so um, I think you're right. It's a you push-pull. I care a lot more about – I always wanted to do it right, but I care so yeah. much more about quality and design and every little piece yeah. of it than I ever have in my life. Because I think as you get older, you just really care about doing it right, right? Yeah, that's right. Right. Okay, so you left a family business – to form a family business. So now you you left one and now you've got one. You've got your siblings yeah, and your husband, yeah, you're all working yeah. together. How is that? Is it is it, I mean, are there pitfalls? Is it fun? Is it great? Like I left a family business. I had an older brother, and um there were so many positives. And um my dad and I, I respected him. He was my best friend, but we thought differently. I wanted to go, and he was at a point in his life where we, he was pulling back. And so there was a push-pull yeah. all the time. But it's got to be fun to have the family all together. Well, first off, I thought that the kids would come through the business and go on out just like I had. So, um, you know, they came in and got stuck. Uh, but they're having fun, right? Oh, no, I mean, it's, it's fabulous. You know, we've all the assets we've ever built, we've put in the kids' names. Yeah. So they're the yeah. 
ones who own this stuff. Yeah. And um, uh, George, uh, their personalities really have gone to the product groups they like. George loves industrial, Lucy Office, and Sumner Multifamily. Mm -hmm. And um, they may own assets in each other's groups, but um, they they run their area. Mm -hmm. And if if you're ever going to finance or sell one of my assets, I, I make those decisions. Right. Besides that, you manage everything. So now we everybody's just doing their own thing, and you know it's nice to see each other, but um, they're, we're not actively engaged on each other's businesses. So I'm not sticking my nose into your business at all. So, so you really have an independent. So Lucy has taken the lead on office. Yeah, on, yeah, yeah. And so you let her run, and you're kind of there if she needs help. Well, no, wait a minute. I'm saying, no, you need to build more faster. And, and I jump into design and, and you know, and, yeah. But other than that, uh, you know, for some reason, I'm the one in the family who's always ready to do the next deal. And um, it's not surprising. Well, but you know, I, you thought your kids would be, you know, wilder than you are. Right. Um, but in any instance. Uh, so are they the ones that are, are tend to be more conservative than you? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Henry, too. But, it, you know. This economy is so good, and they've been in the business long enough that they're building up. They're getting closer to me than him now. <laughs> right. Awesome. Uh, but, and, you know, so we've got, um, you know, one office building under construction right now. We have two that we will be starting momentarily, and we're, um, you know, way down on CDs on one more and just released two more to go all the way to So CDs. you're ready. You're getting after pushing it. it. Yeah. yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so if what what best advice could you give a young person starting out in this business? Because I I think it's 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 a relationship business, right? It's yeah. meet as many people as you can, yeah. maybe kind of get follow your passion. But you know, for most people that want to be a developer, it's getting the experience to be able to go get the capital. Yeah. But so like if you, when you have, I'm sure you have young people running through here all the time asking you for advice. What kind of, any thoughts there, any, any advice for young people? Well, I'm fairly trite, but I think you have to believe in yourself. Totally. And um, that's 99%. And, and it shows when you believe in yourself, then whatever you radiate, I pick it up on it. So I know I'm supposed to believe in you, right. but if you don't believe in yourself, I don't either. <laughs> you know, so, totally. uh, so that's a safe start. Um, you know, if you really want to say, how do you get the background and the credibility to go into development? Um, you know, it's what you mentioned. It's knowing people, it's meeting people, it's developing what in whatever niche you're in. It's, you know, getting to the head of the class. Uh, development itself is pretty hard to get an opportunity to step into. It is. Uh, and so... And probably the best thing is if you can get in with, you know, an existing team. Right. Um, and then branch on out from there. Right. Uh, but well, I think it's really hard to get in. I think if you get in with an existing team, at least you can build your resume yeah. with that team and then get some experience and some confidence maybe to go yeah. out and maybe align with some capital. Yeah. Because, like, I see people, uh, young people that come talk to me and they go, I want to start a fund. And they're like 25. I go, yeah. Nobody's going to give you any money because you don't have the experience right. it takes to get it done, right? Yeah. You got to kind of go get some experience and some relationships before you can, somebody's going to give you that kind of money. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, when your career's over, what's most important to you that you've accomplished? And I'm sure it's not 
building another building? What is it? What is it that you want to do when when you're done your life? Well, I typically don't uh, look back. Um, but, you know, so I, obviously, obviously, it's having um, these kids go out there right. and continue, continue, hopefully, the gift of creation. Right. Um, and uh, and I want to see these trees be giant and the trails be amazing right. and and be you know run down because of too many people are using them right and that's that kind of thing right you know there's no rule book for being a parent like um i've got four kids and all of them have gone on separate paths i've got twins and it's amazing that you, you know you can be born within seconds of each other and be so different yeah it's just yeah, i think yeah, god's yeah kind of up there laughing at us, kind of the way he stirs the pot. But, um, you know, me too. I would, I, for me, it's about trying to make it be a little better than it was before I got here. Um, and, you know, have my kids be on a good path. Yeah. And, um, you know, to have them be focused on making the world better, right? whether it be ergonomically or whatever, just make it a better place. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. For the brief moments that we're here. Yeah, this is like... It's going way too you know, fast. And you look at, you know, all that we consume and use and you think, oh, what well, I, I better be giving back more than I'm getting. Right. Because a lot of us are just consumers and I don't want to just be a consumer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so what is the one opportunity you see out in the world that is so obvious to you that you don't think anybody's taking advantage of? Do you see anything well, in our I'm, business? I'm not a good person for that question. Because we're so immersed in the tracts of, of uh, land that we have. Um, so, um, Do you see a need out there that nobody's fulfilling? You're just laser focused on your sites. Well, I, I think that the retail world has um, a very hard time creating these experiences. The, we are small in retail, but... We've done a few things that are very different. The most unusual is one we call the shacks. It's six little uh, restaurants that are yeah, 650 great. feet yeah. hanging over a dog park and a yeah. floodplain. Um, when you go there, you're, it's, it's your place. You own it. Right. And, you know, you're hanging out with your dog, your friend. And um, most I, I I don't think most retailers or developers are creating places that you really love to be I when totally it's retail. Agree. Right. And that's a missed opportunity. I think, I think retail is cold, right? It's yeah, just they yeah. haven't figured out. Yeah. I kind and maybe it's because I'm an office developer, but I kind of think the office folks are really trying to warm up the environment, yeah, yeah, right? They're yeah. trying to have Soft. less hardscapes and make it, you know, make it more inviting. Yeah. Where retail, it's just, um, and I, I know it's got to be a much more difficult, but it, it should be more experiential, I think. Well, the, even at uh, Cypress Waters at the Sound, the retail buildings we built there, we went and got old bricks. You know, we wanted to give texture and right. to have it be earthy and comfortable. Right. And most retails sharp and polished and right. and shiny right and and 
Right. You know, we, we want to create the Texas you wish you were from. Right. And then, you know, you get there and all, you know, you, it just feels natural. Right. Well, and so, um, what, how about like, are you an are early morning person? Where do you do your best thinking? Are you up early? Are you a late uh, night person? I'm up later than, uh, I'm not as early as I used to be. I get up at six thirty and, and go swim. Okay. So you, your first move is exercise. Yeah. yeah. Mine too. Always. If I don't yeah. do it in the morning, I won't do it. Yeah. Well, and I feel bad all day. And so do you do your best thinking at night or in the morning? Oh, morning. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Yeah. But you're up late, so do you go on very little sleep? You must go on no, five, no, six no, hours no, sleep? No, 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 none of that stuff. I, 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 I want eight hours, but I don't get it. I'm upset, and um, so... So I'm giddy if I get in bed at 10 o'clock, 9, 30, oh, 10 o'clock. It, what a dream it's, that would be. Right, it's my favorite thing if I ever get to do it. I yeah. don't get to do it very often. No, but, and I wake up feeling good. Right. And then if it's 11 o'clock, I'm right. growling and rolling right. out of bed. Hey, everyone, Bill again. Fight Night 33, Breaking Ground, is coming up on Thursday, September 29th at the Hilton Anatole. Since 1989, Fight Night has become a staple for the commercial real estate industry here in Dallas, raising more than $26 million in support of Trek community investors and our neighborhood revitalization partnerships. You can purchase a table at this year's Fight Night by emailing Kristen Urias at kurias at recouncil.com. We'll link to her email in the show notes. Now, back to the show. You know, when I went to SMU, I was a history and English major. I didn't even take a single business class because I was paying my way through college. And I, I did three things. I installed carpet for freshman girls every year. And so I, I made enough money in the first week to pay for an entire year of college. And then to pay for my way during college, I had 50 vending machines, Coke machines, in the apartment complexes around SMU. And each machine, I'd make about a hundred bucks a week selling cokes, and that you know I was making. So you were always an entrepreneur. For oh yeah. One. Oh yeah. And so, how and so did you morph from history major to real estate restaurant? How did you get there? Well, it was interesting. My mother went to Cornell. My father went to Williams College. You know, they were very liberal arts minded, and and uh, I mean, growing up after church on Sundays, we'd go down to the Dallas Museum of Art. I mean, I, I grew up in very much of it. My dad was a banker, but. Wasn't really into business that much. He was he loved to read, and so that kind of spurred that interest. So when I went to college, I was working all day anyway, and I went to work for Joe Foster Company as kind of an intern as well. Back, sure, you know, nineteen eighty, sure. and and so and Terry Darrow and all yeah. those guys. Uh, so I really wanted to expand my thought process and my thinking. So I took a lot of classes in art history. Uh, you know, I love to read, I love to write. And so I always encourage my kids and, and people going to college. I said, you know, when you get out, people want to hire people that think. And coming out and just saying, I've got an accounting degree or a marketing degree or something, you're going to get retrained by no matter who you go work for. Right. And it used to be, you know, the best people in real estate were people that had trained at IBM or Xerox or somewhere else. So, they never knew they wanted to go in the real estate business. They know they wanted to be in sales. And so, but they missed the whole opportunity in college to learn about, you know, the, the greater world that's out there. And so that's why I didn't take any business classes because I wanted to learn. I did take one. I took a construction class because one summer I worked in construction because I wanted to learn the construction business. And so I took a class by an old, real old construction guy and I learned so much about how things are put together and built. 
So I kind of put that in my history department. So, and did you morph kind of into the retail side of of real estate first or? No, what happened is, so as I'm graduating, I was on a, it's a long story, but I end up meeting a guy named Bill Solomon, who is a chairman and CEO of a company called Austin Industries, Austin Commercial, big contract. And he asked me to come work for him when I got out of college, literally the day I graduated on Friday, I started with him on Monday. In Austin Industries, this is at the time, 1983, Dallas is booming. Right. They were they had just built the Bank America Plaza downtown. They built Campbell Center, and they were trying to get more in the commercial business. But out-of-town contractors are coming to town, investing, buying projects from developers by investing in them. So they would get the construction contract. And it's the old saying, don't, don't drink the whiskey you're selling the Indians, right? And so <laughs> they got in into realizing they had to go into it. So he hired me because he knew I was an entrepreneur to go call on, I was 24 years old. And so we met with like, we ended up doing deals with Bill Criswell who built 8080 Central and several other people, Sterling Projects. And we built Sterling Plaza and Preston Center, built a building called 5429 LBJ next to the Galleria. And those are my projects. Lost money on all of them because (laughs) the market turned in the 80s, and you know, we well, funded RTC days, right? Now, yeah. yeah. Well, phase one, 880 Central, as everyone knows, is a massive success for Criswell. Unfortunately, we were the money in phase two, which is now a Chick fil A ground lease. Exactly. And that was supposed to be a companion tower to 880 Central. We also, so I learned a lot in those three years I worked at Austin in how to relate the finance side, the partnerships we put together, the creative side. But also, since I was too young to get in trouble by kissing any debt, that's when the when the market rolled and every you know there was blood in the streets. I knew enough to get in trouble, but I didn't have any money to get into trouble. So right. what I did next is I let Austin had a paving company called Austin Paving that did all these subdivisions in the suburbs. So I would sit at our old offices on Stimmons Freeway and our paving company. What would happen is they would get an SNL, like I'll never forget, Silverado Savings out of Denver or Vernon Savings or Sunbelt Savings would fund all the Murray Savings, all these subdivisions. Well, they all went broke um, before any homes were built, but all the streets and utilities were in. And Austin had a mechanics lien on all these projects. Unfortunately, a mechanics lien isn't worth anything if the senior debt isn't paid first. And so these subdivisions that they would cost twenty to $25,000 per lot put on the ground, well, Austin couldn't perfect the contractor's lien because no one yeah. knew where the bottom was. Right. So I went to the RTC and I started buying these lots back for five to $10,000 a lot. And I ended up buying several thousand lots. And here at this point, I'm 27, 28 years old. And so I'm buying for, you know, 20 cents on the dollar broke subdivisions. So when you did that, did you go out and raise money to do it or did you? Use no, we're, we're, who? Yeah. From, yeah, I, I'd, I'd raised from some people, but my yeah. big hit really was I started doing those banks realized I could perform with RTC that yeah. back then they were called special servicers, bonnet, exactly. right. you know, all those guys yeah. blue bonnet. Yeah. <laughs> Remember all these, uh, Samco and all these different yeah. ones. I was there. Um, the best thing that the RTC did, and people don't realize it, one of the few things the government has ever done right is they had an end date for the RTC. And it was December 31st, either 1990 or 1991, and the RTC had to be out of business. Right. And so what ended up happening is they took back hundreds of billions of dollars of properties around the country, 
but they had to have them all liquidated by one date and then it was over. Instead of being this overhang of value or someone thinking they drag it out, it, it was finally like, let's just dump it all, find a floor for prices, mm-hmm. and then prices could come back. So going into the last month of that, I got a call from a guy I went to SMU with and said, hey, how would you like to buy all the land around the lake in Las Colinas? 68 acres of land at South Incorporation, South and Financial yeah. had lost to Republic Bank, which became NCMB, yeah. which is special servicer. So I bought it for $2 a foot, 68 acres. And I, the only few people in, in town had money. Lamar Hunt backed me to buy all this acreage. So I bought it and then just started cutting it up. All that land across from William Square, all those yeah. hotels. I sold a big chunk of it. Gene Phillips bought some. I sold mm-hmm. to different people. And anyway, that's was a pretty good run for me on that piece. So you off and running. I was, at that point, I'm off and running. And, and But that and the subdivisions... and. What I did on the subdivisions was I'd buy them, you know, like for five to ten thousand a lot, and then I'd find a small home builder. Remember, all the home builders went broke too. People right. forget that. So you would you subordinate the lot and let them go? Uh, I, I would just pull a con. I, I would sell them, let's say, fifty lots at twenty thousand a lot, but they only have to take down five at a time. And it didn't really matter because I bought them so cheap. Right. I just could roll it out. So awesome. I miss those days. Yeah. I didn't realize how good those days were. That was the best buying opportunity, I think, ever. People don't realize when the history of that's written in the future. Yeah. There is nothing that you, every single person that bought anything in those days made money. I remember selling a building at Keller Springs in the Tollway, the two half moon buildings there, for $10 a foot. It was a brand new building in shell with sheetrock and lighting and every stacked on the floor, 10 bucks a foot. Yeah. And uh, they thought they were paying too much. Right, right. Because <laughs> you didn't have any tenants. Right. Well, no, everybody was worried that it would never recover. That's right. And I think after that cycle, that's one thing that I know it's always going to recover. You just yeah. never know when, but but it's going to sure. come back. It yeah. always will come back. Yeah. Okay, so what you're best known for, one of the things I think, two things are Mikasina and obviously Highland Park Village. Mm-hmm. So Highland Park Village. Sure. Uh, I admire what you've done here. I think... Um, your vision, your creativity, everything you've done here, it, you know, I think a lot of people thought you might have been overpaying when you did it, mm-hmm. but nobody had the vision you had. Mm-hmm. So I would love five minutes on like what your thought was going in. You know, it's irreplaceable real estate, mm-hmm. but did you always have a view of where you were going to end up or has that just kind of evolved? Well, as I said earlier, I lived in the same zip code my whole life. Right. And so I grew up in the Highland Park Village. I was a tenant here for 20 years before with me casino. And what I, it's a long story on how it came to me, but it wasn't being, it wasn't on the market. The Millers had selectively showed it to people out of market, you yeah. know, to buy it, but it wasn't in any kind of package. And when I had the opportunity to look at it, at the pricing that we looked at, it did look like a big number, but no one, it's kind of like the Dallas Cowboys. You, everyone wants to own the Dallas Cowboys, but you know Jerry Jones will never sell it. So you never even think about potential. Right. And that same, I think every real estate person in Dallas would have loved to own the Hot Park Village. No one ever thought the Millers would ever sell it. Right. But that remember, that was a time when Lehman Brothers was going bankrupt, Bear Stearns was going bankrupt. No one could get any financing. And so that's another reason, especially in the Dallas market, everyone was scared. Everyone yeah. pulled the horns in. So being Mikasina here, I realized over the time period that CapEx hadn't been reinvested back into the village over the years. 
things like sewer lines, trees, different landscaping, just a lot of stuff hadn't been done. And the rental rates were incredibly cheap. The rental rates when I bought it, the average was $36 a foot. Okay. The reason was the previous owner didn't want to give TI. They'd rather give you cheap rent and you pay for your own TI. So when I built me casino here, I beat out everybody else because I just took it as is. Right. They didn't give me any TI dollars without, but a lot of tenants wouldn't come in without getting TI. So I think a lot of deals were, were kind of lost. And so when I bought it, I knew it needed a major uh, TLC right. to it. So the day we bought it, um, well, I mean, leading up to it, the two or three weeks beforehand, it was, things were dirty. Windows were dirty. There were bird things on the awnings and stuff. And, and I was like, well, why isn't this cleaned up? And I asked the manager, he said, well, it's a tenant's responsibility to take care of their own storefront, their own awnings and stuff. So we went out and bought a power washer. And the day we bought it, the next morning, before the tenant showed up, we had every storefront power washed. We had every awning clean. We'd replaced all the plants and the tenant showed up the next day and they knew a new sheriff was in town that we were reinvesting into the center. So mm-hmm. I I knew, first of all, it needed a big cleanup. Right. And so we started that and then we started investing into infrastructure. All the trees you see in the parking lot, I planted all those within the first 30 days of owning the center. Mm-hmm. Those things started sending a marker out to the community that, you know, things were changing. Then we embarked on a marketing program. They had a halftime marketing person before that. We now have eight people in a marketing department today. You really? And so we put out, started putting out fashion magazines and a lot of things, really not to the Dallas customer. It was to the New York customer. And our customer in New York was the real estate and CEOs of the biggest brands to know we were serious about being in the top rung. Now I did inherit some good things. We had, you know, Hermes was here. Chanel, we had some high end tenants. So we decided we're just going to go for the top, right? you know, the best of the best. And did you start moving rents day one? You know, it's funny. The first le- Banana Republic was in here paying 35 bucks a foot. And they had 8,000 feet yeah. between the theater and, yeah. and uh, Honor Bar. First thing we did was they came to us and they wanted their rent knocked knock down 10% because the economy was bad. And right. I was like, no, no, no. Hey, you guys are going the wrong way on this one. Right. And so we didn't renew their lease and we cut it up in the five spaces. And originally we initially put the first space out at $50 and that hit. And then the next space we put out at six. We kept testing the higher end of the market. And it was interesting what we found when we finally hit around a hundred dollars a foot, which is about a year later, it went from the real estate department of the high end, uh, uh, you know, uh, tenants to the CEO. Cause they're like, wait, how does this guy go from 30 to a hundred? Right. And the head of the real estate department of, you know, these big brands will walk in the CEO and said, if you want to be there. And so they would want to come meet with us and say, well, you know, right. how can you possibly ask that? And we showed them what all we were doing and it helped. My brother-in-law, who a lot of people know, named Stephen Summers, sure. just really fell in love with marketing to high-end retail. So he spent a huge amount of time in New York, Milan, Paris, the fashion shows, and really, most of the high-end fashion brands, whether it's a Beretta, a Chanel, Goyard, they're all owned by families. They want to do business with families. Got it. And so versus Simon or Taubman or the big malls. So that's one thing the Nashers have done a great job with at North Park. They're yeah. family to family. And we're family to family. And so Stephen did a great job of really bonding with these high-end 
So did, you moved rents from 36 to 100 bucks in the first year. Yeah. Now we're at over 300. You're at 300. Yeah. Our and last you, deal was at 300. Are, you, are you giving finish up? We'll, uh, we'll, a white shell. <laughs> yeah. Well, now we don't have to. You right. know, we, we get it to right. that point. But, right. you know, this, in the next two weeks, right now we're, what, mid-September and October, Rolex will open, Van Cleef will open up. We've got Peter Millar is going to do one of their. That's the other thing. We've got, we have a balance here we have to maintain. And since we're family owned. I think that's one thing you do really well. So yeah. you, you, you go pick who you want in here. Yeah, well, like, that's right. And since we're not selling the center. Right. We plan on this being a multi-generational hold. We prefer to do very short-term leases. Really? As short as we can, because I'm not so sure that brand's going to be hot 10 years from now. Or 20 years. So if they're not, you can move them out and replace them them out and replace them out. And so we, between me casino and going down the anthropology, that's all hometown retailers. People might not realize that you walk down there, it goes me casino, Madison, Padley's, Lila Rose, Dino's all the way down. So that's when people walk in here, those are all one of a kind stores. Yeah. Then we mix in the high end brands. Then we have things like the barbershop. You know, people that really can't pay rent. Dino's a cobbler. Dino's is great that, he, that you've kept him. But if I was a REIT trying to get the highest, squeeze the highest rents out of everything, I end up getting higher rents from the few at the top, which balance out because I do lower rents for some of the others that we need to have. But so, you, so you get these guys that are coming in and spending big money on finish out to do short-term leases because they want to be here. They want to be here. Yeah. And, you know... Some of them, you know, if they put huge money on, or if it's a brand, I know will be here long term. Yeah. I'll do that. But you know, the smaller kind of startups, what we prefer to do, the shorter yeah, as we can. Yeah. And so, uh, anyway, that's the balance we had. You know, we knew Tom Tom Thumb was paying twenty dollars a foot in twenty thousand feet, and so we took that and cut that into. We took our storefronts from sixty two storefronts to eighty eight storefronts. So it's a much more interesting shopping experience because. When Tom Thumb was there, it was one long block of just a solid front. Mm-hmm. And now we've got, I think it's eight different storefronts carved into that. And it's a much more interesting deal. And we're trying to get production. You know, we don't like signing 10 up unless they can do at least 3,000 a foot in sales. Did it turn yeah. out to be better than expected or kind of what you expected? You know, I don't know what to expect. I, I just wanted to own it. Right. I figured we'd figure it out. Right. I mean, it's. That's hard to say, but good you, you can't really put on a spreadsheet what you think something might look like. You just got to look at I bought it on like a four and a half cap, probably, or five cap. But on today's rents, you bought it on like a 15. Yeah. We took sales from 70 million the year we bought it. This year, we'll do over 400 million in gross sales for the whole village. The other thing is we got rid of all the office tenants except for ourselves to just free up. If you're, if you're not incremental to, a shop, to the shopper's experience... We don't want that tenant. Yeah. And so we had an executive suite above Starbucks, which we got rid of because they're guys like you and me that yeah. aren't shoppers that are yeah. taking up my parking. So that's why we put Park House on top. And that, that was another thing that moved the needle for us. You know, non-credit, startup. But great experience. Great experience. We knew John Scott and Brady Wood well. We knew yeah. they could perform. Yeah. So if we were a national REIT, or a big, would you put a park house up there? It's no. 20,000 feet and taking yeah. that risk? No. But we were willing to gamble yeah, because yeah. we knew the guys personally and we knew they could make it work. Great move. One, you know, one of the things I, I, I thought was very uh, also creative is when COVID hit, 
you immediately started working on your parking lot. Yeah, I mean, that, that was a good story. So in March of uh, just 2020, right. you know, the world was closed down. I was, I walked to work a lot of days. So I was, I walked up here and not a car was in the parking lot. I was like, you know, we've been talking about paving this parking lot. So we called the town and said, I'll never get another opportunity like this. And they said, go for it. And so the town was very supportive and worked with us on permits and stuff. Our hardest problem was getting the brick because the brick factory closed down. So we had to get brick from a lot of different places. But the reason we had to dig it up, this center was open in 1931. And all they did was overlay the parking lot. So Mm -hmm. it was about two feet thick of overlays for, you know, 85 years. Ripped it out. We put in all new underground utilities, new electrical lines. We got all that done. Now I need another pandemic to finish the south side <laughs> between me casino and the other side. Cause we, we've got the brick in, you know, and we're just waiting for the time to do it. And do we do it in strips? I'll never get another chance to close that whole side. Well, and it seemed like you got them in here, like from idea to activity in weeks. It was quite pretty quick. Yeah. We started, a, you know, mid March we're done by mid July, but we got after it, but everyone knew we had to get it done. Right. And so I was here every day just, I mean, right. you know, it is construction. You just got to pound, right. pound it out. But we wrote, we got rid of all the curbs. It made wider sidewalks. We put in all new trees, new irrigation systems. It's just, it's spectacular. It's beautiful. Yeah. Okay, restaurant business. How'd you get into restaurant business? I was young and naive. Yeah. <laughs> Best way to get in any business. I Again, like the village, I had no, no uh, thoughts of ever being in the restaurant business. And one day I... I was a customer of Mia's on Lemon. This is 1990. I was 30. Yes. And uh, the, Miko sure. was the uh, was my waiter. His dad was in the kitchen and his mom was in front. The original Mia is not the one that people know of today, but the original one was next to a fish store yeah. up, and it wasn't as big as a conference room. Right. And Miko called me one day and said, hey, you know, I want to go in the restaurant business. I was like, well, why? He goes, well, my parents keep firing me and then rehiring me and firing me and rehiring me. I, I don't want to get fired ever again. So he came over and we leased some space at Preston Forest and opened the first one for $77,000 in 19, June 6, 1991. And uh, that store is still there today. We've expanded it now probably five times. Now I can't build one for less than a million and a half. Right. I don't know what happened. Right. But, and what we did on Mikasina that made it different because, you know, so many Mexican food restaurants in town. And I give this to Miko's brilliance because the thing he didn't like about Mia's and Mexican restaurants at the time is you used to get the ice, ice tea in those huge plastic tumblers. Right. You usually got it served on plastic plates. You had a paper napkin. Right. You had a plastic tablecloth right. and all those things. Just imagine. Do a better you know, experience. Everything was kind of a, So he was like, let's, let's serve the same food. I mean, quality food, but on China yeah. and on knives. And so yeah. one thing on my kids, we always, I don't care what restaurant we ever go into. The f- there are three things they have to notice and tell me about when you go in there. What's the temperature like? What's the lighting like? What's the music like? Those three things will determine whether you're going to like that experience or not before you sit down. And just think next time you go to a restaurant, if you walk in and it's bright light, you go, I'm just not going to like this. Or you even sit down and you go, I got a nice glass. I got nice silverware. I have nice china. Mm-hmm. You're, I'm serving you enchiladas on incredibly expensive china. Well, for some reason, it tastes a hell of a lot better than it did if it was served on a plastic so plate. It's all about the experience, right? 
And then, and then our margaritas, which is Miko's invention, the Mambo taxi and all that kind of became a legendary status. And so anyway, open present forest a year later, we got an opportunity to come in the Hump Park Village. What year was that? What year was, did you start the first one? Do you remember? 1991. Okay. June 6, 1991. Okay, got it. All right. February 93, we opened Holland Park Village because Los Volqueros had been there for years. They had kind of put it out, you know, who wants the space? They weren't going to spend any money on it. Everybody else wanted a tenant finish, and they weren't willing to give any, and so we were willing. I think the Millers looked at it and go, well, if they're willing to spend a bunch of money on it and it doesn't work, well, the next guy will charge you more rent for it. And that opened, and people don't unless you've been going for a long time, you know, it's been expanded three times. You know, we built the monkey bar on the roof and yeah, the side and also that's yeah, awesome. And now that, you know, that restaurant will do eight and a half million dollars this year, which is in the restaurant numbers is a huge number. So anyway, so that was number two. And then we slowly started to expand off that. And they're now like, 27 me casinas in, in the market. And how, how much, how far outside of Texas do you go with me? We have one in Tulsa. And we failed in Atlanta, we failed in Houston, and we failed in D.C. And why do you think? Did, well, is it Tex-Mex? That, I yeah, mean, you know, people they, have different taste profiles. Right. If, if you think of taste profiles, the only thing that really works nationally is Italian food, yeah. Chinese food, yeah. and steak. Right. Barbecue doesn't travel. No, it doesn't. In the Southeast, it's a different kind than it's here. Right. And so there are a lot of different taste profiles. Well, even Italian food. You know, Dallas isn't a red sauce Italian market. No. Like in New York, it's a... It, we don't really have any time. But I don't bother eating Mexican food outside of Texas because yeah. I know I'm not going to like it. Yeah. Right? California, the green sauce and stuff. Oh. So D.C., it was a shopping center that they finally, they eventually tore down. It was a bad spot. Um, Houston, we were in in the Woodlands. and We were a freestanding building in a, in a parking lot, a Simon Mall that was just, we'll never go on a mall yeah. deal again. And then Atlanta was just in the wrong section of Atlanta. Atlanta's a very tough market, actually, for restaurants. Okay, so you got a lot of young people going to listen to this podcast. So when you were getting started, you had all these big ideas, your your uh, Coke machines. I love the, the entrepreneur spirit mm-hmm. you have. Mm-hmm. Best advice you could give a young guy? Because I have all these young people come to me. They, they have lots of wants and goals, but no money. Mm-hmm. You know, and... Any advice you can give anybody, like I always tell them, I think it's relationships. You got to try to meet the right people. You want to get on as good a team as you can to get to build your resume. Because I think young people, it's hard for anybody to give them any money, mm-hmm. you know, any significant money. But how, do, how, do, how does a young guy get started as an entrepreneur in this business? Do you have any, any recommendations? Well, first thing you got to realize from a guy who paid his way through college is failure is not an option. Okay. It's not over until you quit. Yeah. And there are a lot of people that can look at something and go, well, life's been pretty good. I've had my parents pay for everything. I'm going to go start my business. If it doesn't work or something, they just walk away. Right. And just think, I walk away, go do something else. Not realizing I've had businesses I've invested in. They've been failures. I've lost a lot of money in them. They have not worked. But we ran that ball out, you know, all the way because you have no way. If you don't have that mindset, A, that's a problem. Two is you got to find where your passion is. And as an investor, and you've invested in a lot of deals, if someone comes in to pitch me something, and part of the passion is knowing everything about what they're trying to get you to go into. If a guy wants you to invest in, you know, he's coming up with a new fashion magazine, and why? Well, because I get to hang around a bunch of models or whatever. It's like, no, 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 no. That's not why you do it. Right. You know, I mean, I'm, there are just so many crazy 
um, ideas out there that come up with, but you got to have the passion. You got to realize you can't fail. If an investor thinks failure is a walk away for you, right? They're not going to invest with you. And the last is the best city in the world to be in is Dallas, Texas, totally. because people are sitting here willing to invest in you. If you're honest, you're transparent. Can't tell you how much young people got to understand. You got if you have tough news to deliver, you deliver it immediately. And if you don't, it just gets worse right. because the truth will always come out in the end. And if you think you know you were working on a big deal and it went bad because maybe you did something wrong, you just got to admit up to it, and, yeah. and they'll look at it and go on. But we're in the business of betting on things that we think are going to be well. You built things before you thought were going to be your big homer and they weren't. You right. got other stuff you thought was going to do okay and ended up being the homer. Right. You just don't, don't right. know, but you got to have a passion. That's all for today's show. I'd like to thank Craig Hall, Lucy Billingsley, and Ray Washburn for sharing their time and insights with us. Make sure you subscribe to TrackCast wherever you download podcasts to listen to the full-length versions of the interviews you heard today, and stay tuned for part two of this best-of series with insights from Mark Gibson of JLL Capital Markets, Sue Ansel of Gables Residential, and Bill Cawley of Cawley Partners. That's right, we even had Bill on as a guest earlier this year. We've linked to everything for you in the show notes, including our social media handles, ticket info for our August 17th Bank of Texas Speaker Series event, applications for the deal, and fight night table details. Until next time, I'm Bill San Antonio. Thanks for listening.